If you're loving the Bible Brief, will you take just a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify? We're having hundreds of people every week try out the show, and we want you to help even more discover the Bible Brief. Potential listeners depend upon your reviews to learn why they should listen. So will you do us a favor? Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Join the cause to help the world learn the life-changing story and message of the Bible. What does the life of Abraham have to do with Jesus? Today we're looking at just a few things we can learn about Jesus through the life of Abraham. On the Bible Brief. Leave us a review on your podcast player and help others discover the show. Don't forget to tap the link in the show notes and leave us a five-star review. What do you think of when you hear the word priest? Do you think of a choir with deep voices and a somber scene where somebody with a white collar performs a ritual? Maybe you think of a guru-type figure who seems to have things figured out more than everybody else when it comes to God and spiritual things. Or perhaps a priest is so far from your experience that the idea of a priest seems archaic and old in and of itself. Well, in the Bible, when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about the greatest priest that has ever and will ever live. In the New Testament, we're told that Jesus is our, quote, great high priest. And to understand Jesus and what he does as a priest, it can help us to look through the life of Abraham at this priesthood. Now, as we've previously said, a priest is simply a go-between between God and man, one who represents man to God and who represents God to man. The actual function of a priest has nothing to do with clothing or wisdom or music or anything else. The go-between function essentially depends upon God's recognition or establishment of a valid priest and a valid priesthood. If you recall, Abraham met a great priest and king after his battle against the four invading kings. And this great priest is identified as Melchizedek a name meaning king of righteousness. Melchizedek is an important figure in the Bible, not so much because of the volume of words about this man, but rather because of the significance that his priesthood carries when contrasted with another priesthood in the Bible. And listener, you can think of a priesthood as a sort of order or group or guild of priests that are all related by their qualifications for being a priest. The priesthood of Melchizedek has a qualification that differentiates it from a later priesthood that was according to lineage or bloodline. The Melchizedek priesthood is differentiated in that it's not based on ancestry or lineage. Instead, we find the essential qualification of the priesthood of Melchizedek was indestructibility. And we need to look into that for a moment. When the New Testament speaks about this figure, Melchizedek, who Abraham met, it ensures that we notice what we don't read about Melchizedek in the book of Genesis. I'm going to read from the book of Hebrews chapter 7, and I want you to notice that after translating his name and title, the writer goes on to express what Genesis doesn't say about Melchizedek. This is Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, 
met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Notice this. This text ascribes greatness to the fact that Melchizedek doesn't have a recorded mother, father, genealogy, beginning, or end. And because of that, Melchizedek in ways resembles Jesus, the Son of God. The fact that Melchizedek doesn't have a recorded beginning or end makes him like a dim picture of Jesus, who actually has no beginning or end, because Jesus is eternal. God then, through the writer of Hebrews, helps us see that an eternal, indestructible priesthood was established with Melchizedek that is superior to any other priesthood. And the qualifications for that priesthood are essentially being indestructible or eternal. It's not a priesthood on the basis of bloodline, like we'll come to see in a priesthood we'll find about soon in this walkthrough, but rather it's indestructibility that's the qualification. The writer emphasizes this point in verse 15 and following of the same chapter. We read, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And the writer later continues this thought, saying, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This final statement helps us see the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek a priesthood upon which Christians daily depend for our spiritual sustenance, salvation, and relationship with God. It's through Jesus, elsewhere called a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, that we have our go-between. Jesus is our one and only priest who perfectly represents an imperfect people in his forever priesthood before God the Father. And furthermore, Jesus represents God to us as the perfect, indestructible, eternal representative of God's grace and judgment to a confused and sinful world. Jesus is our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, the founder of the Bible's greatest priesthood. Now, if you remember the order of events in Abraham's life, soon after meeting Melchizedek and giving a tenth to Melchizedek, Abraham is visited by God. In this conversation, God reiterates his promise of offspring to Abraham and tells him that the number of the stars is like the number of his future offspring. Abraham's response is something that we highlighted as having immense importance for the rest of the Bible story. Listen to his response again from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And Abraham believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that sentence, it doesn't sound as profound as we've made it out. That is, you may say, 
okay, that's great. God counted it to him as righteousness. But what does that mean? What is this righteousness that God counts to him? And why does righteousness matter? Isn't the Bible about salvation? Why should I even care about righteousness if salvation's the goal? Well, it's probably going to help us to define terms. Because salvation and righteousness are not ideas in opposition. They are critically complementary. And in simple terms, salvation is the state of being saved. Or in negative terms, being out of danger. Whereas righteousness is a little harder to define, and we're going to use a visual to help. Imagine a straight line up and down, a vertical line, where on the left side you have God, and on the right side of the line you have your name and the name of everyone else you know. Now, if we labeled the left side where God is, we might label that righteous. And if we would label the other side of the line, the right side of the line where you are, we might label that unrighteous. Now suppose we add some colors to this diagram. On the left side where God is, is the purest white. Think of maybe a glass of whole milk, that kind of white. And on the right side where you are, we have counterfeit white. Now some of those counterfeit whites may not be very good counterfeits. Let's suppose Hitler's on that side. Well, on the right side of this diagram, he might be represented by the color black. You, on the other hand, maybe you haven't murdered somebody. Maybe you haven't done what might be called the egregious sins. But your color is counterfeit nonetheless. In human terms, maybe you're even one of the best. If other people on the right side of that line looked at your color, they might say it looked like the purest white. The problem is that when we compare it to God's white on the left side of that line, it's easy to see that you have a counterfeit. Now maybe you're getting the picture of righteousness. Righteousness is a quality inherent to God's perfection, but alien to man's corruption. Many people try to have a counterfeit sort of righteousness, and maybe they really truly live good lives from a human perspective. The problem is, is that they can't measure up to God's perfect standard. As it says in the Bible, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even a single sin, even that fleeting thought, stains our greatest attempts at the purity of God's righteousness. That means that outside intervention is absolutely necessary for us to find ourselves on the other side of that line, to be able to match the righteousness of God. And it's here in Genesis 15.6 that we see the solution to the righteousness problem that we have. The solution is what theologians call imputation, where God counts his own quality of righteousness to us, even when our actions and thoughts aren't deserving of that righteousness. When the Bible says Abraham believed in the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness, what we see is the means by which we can be saved, the means by which we can be taken out of danger. We need God's righteousness counted to us, just like Abraham did. Now, the book of Romans in the New Testament, especially in chapter 4, says this about this imputation of righteousness. Let's listen, starting in verse 18 of chapter 4. In hope, Abraham believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, 
which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Did you catch that? This verse was not written for his sake alone, but for ours too. Our faith in Jesus works just like Abraham's faith. God offers his righteousness to those who have faith in Jesus. And this act of imputation, where God counts his righteousness to believers, does something else too. It causes God to look at us and say, not guilty. Because we've been covered by God's pure white, with no stain to be found, we can be sinners and yet be declared not guilty of sin. That is, we can be justified by God. Because of this great heavenly transaction, our counterfeit righteousness and downright sinfulness were transferred away from us and onto someone else. They were transferred onto Jesus. Listen to this. The Bible says elsewhere that, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Genesis 15, verse 6, we have the first description in the Bible of the great transaction that can happen for each of us. A transaction where we have faith in God, and God counts our faith as his own righteousness, covering us in a perfect, pure white. When God counts us righteous, we join him on the left side of the line, pure, spotless, blameless, and saved able to have close fellowship with God again because we've been covered in his righteousness. And all this because of Jesus taking our sin upon himself. Listener, do you have this kind of faith in God? Are you convinced that God will do what he says? That he will make you clean and give you his righteousness? If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, there's no better time than today. The Bible says this, today is the day of salvation. Join us next time as we continue in the developing story. Isaac and Rebecca are having twins. Twins struggling in the womb, fighting over dominance. And at their birth, one is grasping the other's heel. Find out what this means for the Bible story as we meet the grandsons of Abraham. The Bible Brief is brought to you by the Bible Literacy Foundation, dedicated to helping people like you learn the Bible.